I don't understand you guys. I've looked through my podcast downloads, and you don't seem to be too interested in prairie chickens. Now, prairie chickens are as iconic as rough grouse, sharp tails, and the quails. Of course, the only quail that gets much press is Bob White's, which is another issue that's difficult to understand. Hey, did I tell you guys that I flushed two coveys of Bob's in the Nebraska Sandhills? A covey in central South Dakota, a couple coveys on both sides of the Iowa-Minnesota border, and several in far northeastern Nebraska. I really want to take a combination limit of Bob White's and prairie chickens. I guess that's how I tie my tangent about quail into this episode. As long as we're on tangents, I'm all geared up for the crappie spawn. For me, 14 to 16 inch crappie is the only fishing that rivals hunting. I really enjoy figuring out where the slabs are. I think I'd rather get into crappie than spring turkey. I got Lyme disease one year while turkey hunting and it about ruined my summer and soured me on spring turkey hunting. Chaos and Maybe are both in heat now, so I have to keep a close eye on their whereabouts. If it ever dries out around here, I'll start getting them some field work. That's one thing good about living in this part of Iowa. A guy sure doesn't have to worry about disturbing any nesting pheasants. Well, here's another tangent for you. I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. I bought a Canon Pro... I don't know what number. Hell, there's a million model numbers. A photo printer. Uh, about five or six years ago, just before I went to Pheasant Fest. And I haven't touched it since. I printed three or four photos, and then I've just left it set. But I just about an hour ago dusted the thing off, plugged it in, hooked it up to my PC, and it. I was afraid that all the inkjets would be dried out, that I would have nothing but trouble with it. But I fired that sucker up, and I started printing pictures of chaos and maybe... So I'm pretty happy that I don't have to throw another printer into the scrap heap. Hello, I'm Randy Shepard, and welcome to My Dog Hunts Podcast. Please give yourself a pet on the back for listening to the only podcast that I subscribe to. I can't believe I never published this story before. It's kind of short, so I think I'll expand on it with more opinion regarding prairie chicken hunting. It's prairie chickens and a fall turkey. I gave myself seven days. I hadn't attempted to take any new upland bird dual limits in nearly 10 years. As my old Springer critter aged, I began hunting coyotes and deer more and birds less. Our hunts were recreational. We still shot a lot of birds together, but I didn't feel like pushing her that hard anymore. Then after she died in 2003, I hunted prairie grouse every season and shot a few pheasants on the side, but I was doing a lot more deer and coyote hunting. I got married in 2005 and continued deer, turkey, and coyote hunting with an occasional prairie grouse hunt. I had explained bird hunting, dual limits, and dogs to my wife, but I just wasn't yet ready for another dog. Then in 2009, I realized that having not finished taking dual limits was eating away at me. I was getting older, and while Midwestern dual limits weren't particularly physically demanding, expanding to Western States chucker, Hungarian partridge, and mountain grouse would be. I understood that it might take me 10 years or more to finish the doable Midwestern doubles, and by then I'd be near retirement. Hey, what a surprise, I made it. I didn't get all of the combination limits I wanted, but I have nearly reached retirement. And I would likely be at an age that higher elevation dual limits might not be possible. 
I knew then that I needed and wanted a bird dog. I don't mind painting myself into a corner with my wants. I told my wife that I was heading to Nebraska and South Dakota to attempt any of three different dual limits, including prairie chickens. That if I could claim at least one new dual limit in seven days, I was going to get either a lab or springer pup and seriously pursue duels again. Many hunters might be surprised that I would choose prairie chickens for a dogless dual limit, or believe that I would be pass shooting chickens. I don't pass shoot chickens. In spite of what you may have read, I have been able to successfully and predictably walk up both prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse without a dog, even into December. And as highlighted in my previous dual limit podcast, I've many times shot a double limit of sharp-tails while hunting dogless. I told my wife I would be happy with any of three different possibilities that I had never taken before. Three prairie chickens and 15 morning doves. Three prairie chickens in Turkey. Three prairie chickens in Nebraska. And three prairie chickens in South Dakota. Of the three, prairie chicken and fall turkey should be the easiest. Just shoot a limit of chickens and take a break from real hunting to shoot a turkey. However, only marginal turkey habitat runs parallel to chicken habitat, so I knew there would be some driving involved. I also knew that the Nebraska Sandhills was not the place to try this. I needed to find new chicken ground. Believe me, there is anxiety in attempting dual limits, but I believe that anxiety accompanies most worthwhile endeavors or they wouldn't be challenging or rewarding. The anxiety of fall turkey is the bag limit and the fact that it's far easier in my experience to shoot a prairie fall turkey during the morning feeding period than later in the day. If you know where they roost, you have a very good chance of finding them in the morning. They can roam an awful lot during the day. Just catch them out feeding the morning before and you can count on them being in the same field at the same time provided they don't change roost and aren't disturbed before they get there. The problem with an AM fall turkey is that you need a primary plan, a backup plan for your primary plan, and a plan B. As I've mentioned earlier, shooting a turkey first means you absolutely have to shoot another limit of something that same day, or you just threw that turkey tag away. There are no buys or carryovers. If I was going to shoot a limit of chickens with a turkey, I needed two areas that I could expect to shoot a limit of chickens, not just one, then another plan in case chickens didn't work. You can't mess around with turkey tags. But the state of Nebraska had become a kinder, gentler place for fall turkey hunters. They now allow two fall turkey tags per license. It seemed that I could make one mistake. It was hot at home, and I traveled in shorts and deck shoes. I stopped at the Nebraska Game and Parks Regional Office in Bassett and talked to prairie grouse biologist Bill. These guys are your friends. Internet forum scouting is bad. Game department scouting is good. Bill cautioned me that the prairie grouse hatch was marginal, and I was still hunting a little too far west for dependable prairie chicken numbers. I would have to sort through a lot of sharp tails in this area. I was slightly disappointed with the forecast, but still eager to start hunting. Maybe a little too eager. It was past noon, and I just couldn't waste hunting time changing clothes, 
so I stuffed shells in the pockets of my Carhartt work shorts and assaulted the first piece of CRP map ground in shorts, deck shoes, and no socks. You'd think that an adult would know better. I certainly proved that all adults don't know better. Four hours later, I was back at my truck with my legs looking like I just took them off and drug them down a gravel road, but I did have a three-bird limit of just prairie chickens as salve. I wasn't going to tell you about this hunt, but now I feel like I have to. I chose a two-mile section with three CRP center pivots. I started on the south edge with the tall bordering pasture. I started from the east because the wind was westerly. Remember, hunt prairie grouse with the wind at your back. But first you have to realize that western CRP isn't the tall, thick cover that wetter eastern Nebraska and Iowa CRP is. Western grass is bunch grass. Bunch grass has the majority of its root system at ground level. This allows the plant to absorb moisture quickly before it seeps into the sandy soil. Since it grows in clumps rather than a blanket, there's enough open ground and visibility for prairie grouse. As I'm sure I've mentioned before, I'm particularly alert when I crest any rise in elevation. Most of the time, sharptails and chickens will be loafing on the downwind side, even if there's only a slight breeze. At the second rise, a chicken flushed wild from the adjoining pasture and several more nearer and to my left. It's a comforting feeling when you pick out a field from home and flush birds within sight of your rig. I said nearer, but not close. I only had a shot at the slowest bird, but I hit him well. I was a mile deep rounding the second pivot before I flushed another group. There were nearly a dozen chickens, but again they flushed on the edge of range. I missed with my first shot, then a single flushed nearer. You can expect that most of the time, prairie grouse will flush like popcorn, and occasionally much delayed. Hustle to the location of a wild flushing covey, and especially in the early season, you may be rewarded with a shootable bird. This was an easy crossing shot, resulting in a refreshing puff of feathers and a dead bird. I was approaching the last decent looking cover in the third pivot. I always slow my pace and wander a bit when I know I don't have time to relocate. I didn't want to walk by a bird in this field. I was also looking toward a bowl near the center of this pivot that I would turn to once I met the road. That's when another large flock flushed, most of them out of range as I was now working with the breeze in my face. Too far, too far, there's one I could try. I shot three times as fast as I could pump with both the second and third shot causing the bird to flinch. The breeze had turned much cooler, blowing in a gray sky. The bird was well behind the rest of the flock, flying high over mowed hay ground. Fall, 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 and then he did. Folded up and came crashing down near a clump of round hay bales several hundred yards out. I could see a puff of feathers when it hit the ground and barely make out a little white spot. It was the first prairie grouse out of hundreds that I'd shot that towered. I loved the feeling of ejecting the shells from my gun and walking back to the truck with a limit of birds. It was nice walking in the cut hay ground. Shin splints were a massage in comparison to the raw burning scratches covering my lower legs. I wouldn't be repeating this time-saving measure again. We all realized that everything in the quail deserts 
and most things in the rough grouse woods scratch, tear, and puncture even protected parts of your body. But even in the benign prairie, everything can be hard on bare skin. There's prickly pear, poison ivy, yucca spikes, rose hips, sand cherries, and sand burrs to wear down your epidermal. For the rest of the hunt, I wore my 9-inch bean boots with a pair of wool socks rolled over the top and shorts. That was the most comfortable hot-weather outfit I've ever tried. I'll bet I looked nice, too. That August, I convinced my wife that a used Weatherby patrician I'd found on the Internet would be an extremely thoughtful birthday gift, especially so if gifted a couple months early. Well, how could she resist? It was a replacement. I still had a Weatherby Patrician I bought in 1973 with my first adult paycheck. I shot thousands of clay pigeons and hundreds of birds with that gun. It wasn't an expensive gun and certainly not a collector's gun, so it wasn't surprising that I simply shot it out. I did find some replacement parts, but the old girl required more internal organs than were available. I had been shooting a Belgian Browning Superpose for many years, and that gun accounted for most of my dual limits, but I was tired of being restricted to just two shots and hated to think about how many more dual limits I might have taken if I hadn't handicapped myself with a double barrel. My birthday gun came with a 28-inch modified barrel, which I quickly replaced with a 24-inch cylinder bore barrel I had modified from a 30-inch full choke when I bought the original gun. There were no choke tubes in those days, so I bought a replacement 28-inch full choke barrel for duck hunting. I might add, there was no Iowa turkey hunting in those days either. I know young guys today would have a hard time realizing that when I was a kid, it was rare to see a white-tailed deer in Iowa. And I don't mean because there were mule deer here. <laughs> there weren't mule deer either, but in Turkey were non-existent. I think I saw my first turkey in probably around 1980 or 1981. Back to Nebraska and chicken hunting. Guns are my tools, and although I love highly figured walnut and blued steel, you wouldn't know it from the condition of my guns. The rough grouse woods nearly stripped the finish from my old Weatherby and severely altered the outward appearance of the superposed as well. Hunting rough grouse south of Interstate 90 in Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa was not a logging road stroll. We hunted steep, rocky side hills and took falls that would make any western state's chucker hunter proud. And our guns looked it. The vented rib on my Weatherby looked like a roller coaster, and I had an apple twig for a front sight for years. I saw a few morning doves that day, so elected to move to the Nebraska National Forest that evening. I had shot several limits of doves and many prairie chickens there in the past and hoped I could possibly find a turkey as well. Apparently, there had been a severe hailstorm in the area that summer. There were few sharp tails and even fewer chickens. I saw one chicken fly across the two track before I started hunting and flush three sharp tails, which I refused before 8 a.m. Those were the last prairie grouse I saw that day. I chatted with a few hunters who reported similar or worse results, so I decided to sit on a waterhole at dusk and hope for a few doves to make that drive worthwhile. Numbers of doves are not easy to find in the sandhills, but I had shot a few near limits and finished out a combination limit of sharptails and doves at this waterhole a few years earlier. 
In keeping with the rest of the day, the pasture with the one good dove attractant was in rotation. There were no cattle, and the windmill was locked off. No groundwater, no trampled weeds, and no doves. I slept on my cot under the stars, planning to drive back to the chicken area in the morning. It said the sand hills are the second best place to view stars in the U.S., and it would be hard to argue that point. I was sleeping with my head in a bowl of them. At daylight, I folded my bag loosely, planning to lay it out to dry later in the day. The fall dew was heavy. Without a breeze to dry things off, you do not want a mildewy sleeping bag. I had plenty of time on the road to plan my day as I waited for flagmen and pilot cars. I decided to pass by a reservoir on my way northeast. I had never been there, and other hunters had mentioned that it used to be good grouse and turkey hunting. It was still early when I stopped at the park office. There was a flock of semi-domesticated turkey in the parking lot. I determined a poacher's plan of dispersing these birds into an area open to hunting and achieving vengeance for the unfilled Nebraska fall turkey tags in my past when a boat-towing pickup dispersed them for me. I hope you know me well enough by now to realize that was a joke, and I don't hunt that way. I drove the north road back west searching for a turkey or grouse hunting area. I stopped in a mid-lake parking area and walked some pasture and trees, kind of in between chicken and turkey habitat. The grass was too thick and tall and the trees too thin for either bird. I moved closer to the lake and heavier trees, but the heavy dew constantly dripping down my neck every time I ducked under branches convinced me that there were better ways to spend the morning. Like glassing for turkey from the road, Finally, I saw a flock of turkey feeding on public land. This was a Wednesday and just the second day of the fall season, so I was hopeful that no one would be bothering these birds until the weekend. I slipped into a finger of trees and found their roost. When I peeked out, they had left the field. I had possibly spooked them, but I was still certain that they'd be back tomorrow and I would be waiting for them. I felt better about what a few minutes ago had seemed like wasted driving. My fall turkey was virtually assured. Now I had to locate more chicken ground. I decided to rework some CRP that I had partially hunted a couple days ago. I didn't move any birds there then, but the cover was so thin, I only hunted about half of it. I decided to start in from the northeast corner and see if that was any better. Loaded up the old Weatherby with an ounce and a quarter of seven and a halves and headed out in my silly boots and shorts. It was towards the center of the section that I got into birds. The cover was heavier here, along a shallow drainage, with small pockets of plum thickets. I was surprised to not get into birds right away as the cover looked really good. Then finally, as I neared a bend, the first sharp tails flushed a little wild, then more in easy range. They didn't fly far, indicating they were juvenile birds. Soon I was into more grouse and my patience for prairie chickens was wearing thin. Then a pair of grouse flushed and flew crossing at 25 yards. I convinced myself that after all the driving, a little transgression would be good for my soul and I shot a single. As I was retrieving the bird, I saw another single fly into a plum thicket on a small bank about 100 yards away. I circled to a rise, approaching from above, and the grouse took flight below me and straight away. 
I thought I hit it well, but it continued to sail and land about 75 yards away in a small patch of tall grass. All the while, more grouse erupted from the thicket during these moments. They weren't flying far, landing near another thicket just ahead. I knew my hunting was going to be over soon enough, and I let them fly. As I neared the crippled grouse, it flushed wild, flew about 10 yards, and died in mid-flight. Well, that was easy enough. I mentioned earlier in the podcast when I shot that chicken that fell out of the sky for me. Just a couple of days later, this was the first time I had a grouse that I hit, take off airborne, and I should say a sharp-tailed grouse that I hit that took off again and then died. I mentioned in my one of my rough grouse hunting podcasts that I had the same thing happen with the rough grouse, only uh, I didn't get to see it fall. If you haven't listened to that episode, I was hunting with Pitch and a buddy of mine, Pitch my first black lab, and she flushed a pair, one going downhill and one going across the ravine. I shot the one going across first. I saw him fall on the bank on the far side, and then I shot the one going downhill. Pitch brought back the downhill bird, and I tried to walk up and pick up the uphill one myself, but when I got about 15 feet from it, it jumped up and flew off. I, 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 I'm sure I shot again and missed it, but that was the first time that I'd ever knocked one down that appeared to be dead and had to get up and fly. But probably a half an hour later, it was just before dark, and my buddy and I were on our way back walking on a cow trail along the side of the ridge, and I happened to look down, and here was a dead grouse laying right in the trail. Um, and it was facing the same direction as that one flew, probably 200 yards from where I had initially shot it, and it was still warm. I mean, I have no doubt that it was the same bird. I don't know what the likelihood is is for a bird like that to fall on a cow path for you but but again that's the would be the total of the third time that I've had birds do that with two grouse on my belt I continued along the drainage and soon another pair flushed in range of my cylinder bore 12 I shot one of the pair retrieved the pretty near white bird and left the section quietly I didn't want to disturb the birds any more than necessary this could be a plan B later in the week if I had a problem finding more chickens. It was just mid-afternoon with my limited sharp tails, so I drove back to the reservoir to see if I could locate and possibly shoot a turkey before dark. I stopped along the way to take a couple pictures of my limit and clean the bird cavities. Just as I approached my intended turnoff, a pickup with two camoed hunters pulled in ahead of me. It seemed that I wasn't the only public land hunter after a turkey, and this one had a guide. I didn't see a cameraman, so don't anticipate seeing this hunt on the outdoor channel. This made me question whether there's more to killing a fall turkey than the see-and-shoot hunts I was used to in Iowa. I drove another mile down the road and entered the river bottom timber. The cover was thick and the mosquitoes thicker, but I toughed it out till near dark. I had a doe whitetail with her yearling feeding within 30 yards, and I could hear a turkey chattering all around me, but with all the greenery, I couldn't see a bird. There were jakes practice gobbling and hens clucking within range of my 10-gauge, but I just couldn't see them. I didn't hear a shot from the other hunters who were near the roost I located that morning, so I was still confident for tomorrow. 
I spent the night at the little roadside park stoking my confidence for tomorrow as I lay listening to prairie night sounds. There was the field I took a limit of chickens in three days ago, and the grouse field that I left largely undisturbed today. There was also a small range of hills just across the road from the field I shot the chickens in a few days earlier that was some shaggy hills with about 30% of it cut into hay ground. And I knew that from talking to a biologist that it was a lake uh, dancing ground for prairie chickens and sharp tails. So although I hadn't hunted it, I was pretty sure that I could find at least a few chickens in there. Many years ago, with Critter, I shot a limit of sharptails, pheasants, and a fall turkey in South Dakota. A friend informed me that I could count the turkey and either pheasants or grouse as a combo limit, but not both. He sure was picky about an activity that he didn't engage in. But he was right, and it was okay with me. I knew that one day I would have another opportunity at one or the other and would make things right. Today could have been it, or maybe even tomorrow, if I couldn't find chickens. I parked my pickup at first light and walked to Shelter Belt alongside the dove field I had seen the turkey in the morning before. The roost trees were on the other side, so I knew I wouldn't disturb them moving in. The sandburrs were thick, and it took some time to pick them from my clothes and arm's length of my chosen hide. I was backed against a cedar tree with a good view of the cut field and pretty good view of an uncut field beside me. I estimated that it was about 50 yards across the field, so I was confident that I could shoot full width if I had to with my Ithaca Mag 10. It was loaded with two and a quarter ounces of copper-plated lead sixes, pretty devastating stuff out of a 32-inch full choked waterfowl barrel. The morning was quiet, so I busied myself pruning branches and weeds that might impede my shooting when I had a MacGyver moment. Realizing that a few more inches of elevation would make it easier to shoot over the weeds, and that I'd be more comfortable with a hole for my feet, I began squirming around digging a sizable hole in the soft sand with my fingers. I deposited the sand from the hole to make a higher seat for myself. Finally, with the nice hole for my feet and another 10 inches of height, I began studying grasshoppers through my 10 by 40 binoculars. I noticed that they spent the night on the underside of leaves, and as the sun warmed, they gradually maneuvered to the top side and shifted into the sun. I also realized that I needn't have lathered up with mosquito repellent this morning, as it was cool enough that there weren't any around. Another reason to hunt a.m. over p.m. for early season turkey. The morning droned on as I scanned the field edge and as deep as I could into the timber. I didn't wear a watch, but began placing countdown time barriers on how long I would wait. I do that with fishing with live bait. I'll count to a hundred, and if I don't have a bite, I'll cast again. Of course, the time limit was determined by how good the location looked. I did the same thing with the number of casts while fishing artificials. And, of course, I always lied to myself by counting fast or slow and not counting poor casts. I can't believe I'm putting this in a hunting podcast except to emphasize the degree of patience required from a bird hunter while waiting several hours for turkey that may not show up at all. I was thinking another hour and I'll have to go scout some more. They should have been here by now. Then it's, oh relax, this is a nice way to spend a morning. 
Well, except for that farmer's dog about a quarter mile up the road. Bark, bark, bark. Barking at every vehicle that went by. Barking at the kids when they came out of the house. Barking when they got into the school bus. The kind of thing that grates on you after a while, like somebody kicking the back of your theater seat while you're watching a movie. Then glasses up? Yes, those little black blobs down on the end of the field are turkey. Soon I could count fifteen birds. They seemed nervous at first, occasionally moving back into the brush, then fully committed, they quickly moved to the center of the field and nearer my hide. They were now about a hundred yards out, drifting my way and on my side of the field. I was planning shooting lanes as they would soon drop into a small depression and I wouldn't see them again until they were twenty-five yards away. When I next saw them, they had shifted to the far side of the field, but were still working towards my position. Then, when most of the flock was within 75 yards, they again moved towards my side of the field. Now my problem was going to be enough separation between birds to not kill more than one with my shot. There are a lot of pellets in a 10-gauge load. I had turkey within 30 yards, but grouped too tightly, and three jakes to the right, but none would raise its head. It almost seems silly to be so excited about shooting a fall turkey when the outcome is expected, but that's the nature and nuance of hunting. Finally, one of the jakes raised his head for a look-see, and the Ted and Gage boomed. Then there's that brief panic between the recoil and regained sight picture. Did I get him? Is he dead? The confirmation that you did it right. You are killing animals, and for an honest man, there should be a hint of remorse for what you've done, balanced by the knowledge that you did it right. In the natural world, there are two purposes for prey animals. One is propagation, and the other is to feed predators. And we are the predator. As usual with fall turkey, some of the flocks scattered while others ran a few feet and then resumed feeding. The entire flock was drifting away, with the exception of a lone jake, who putted, strutted, and pecked at his fallen brother. You get the impression they don't really like each other that much. Although I had a second tag, I had no desire to kill another turkey today. I watched as the Jake noticed that the rest of the family had wandered off, and he too left the field. With even juvenile turkey, they are pretty birds, and it's impossible to carry a tagged bird over your shoulder without feeling a little pride. I stowed my turkey in the bird box and stripped off the camo at 10 a.m. I was wearing my hot weather bird hunting outfit underneath and was ready for chicken hunting. I really don't like them, but when it's hot, I'll often fasten a leather bird strap on my belt and stuff shells in my pockets to avoid wearing a vest. I don't even remotely resemble an advertiser's version of an upland bird hunter, but I am comfortable and I kill a lot more birds than their posers do. I drove straight to my chicken field in the hope that no one else had hunted it this week. In hunting public access, there's always the haunting feeling that you'll find a parked truck just where you wanted to start. Or worse, that someone else had already hunted and left, and now you are unknowingly scratching for leftovers. I walked one-third of the field without flushing a bird as I had the first day, but then I was into a lot of chickens in a small swale. The first chicken was a single that I didn't hit hard enough. I diligently searched for about five minutes while others flushed around me. 
Out of frustration, I marked the fall with my hat and trotted to some higher ground where I could see just how many birds were leaving the field. Another chicken got up at 30 yards that I did hit hard. I quickly grabbed him up, and when I saw no more wild flushes, I went back to look for the cripple. As I continued to search, two more chickens flushed at about 40 yards. I was wondering what the odds were to have any chickens left by the time I found the bird or gave up. When I had trampled the grass into a mat, I still wandered around hoping to not lose this bird. It's really rare, even without a dog, to lose a sharptail or a prairie chicken, but I did that day. After relinquishing the bird to the predator gods, I again returned for a last effort and then resumed hunting. I checked my chamber and magazine for shells, crested a small hill to another draw. Two more chickens flushed out of range, but three more very near. I made a clean double with two shots, convinced that neither of these birds was going anywhere. I had an anxious moment as I recalled that the last bird had clucked as it flew. I was afraid I might have shot a sharp tail. Clucking is a common trait of grouse. I had read that chickens occasionally cluck, but I had never heard it before, and a sharp tail would ruin this day. Approaching the bird, I couldn't help but notice it had a white breast, sharp tail white, but its legs were yellow, and it did have horizontal black bars, not the V's of a sharp tail on its chest. I then laid all three birds together on the ground to compare them. The first two were indeed pure chicken, but it appeared the last bird was a sharp-tailed chicken cross. I had read biologist reports of crossbreeding, but this was the first one I had seen. Light-colored breast or not, it was chicken enough for me. Even after having my three-bird limit of chickens, I stopped back in that first swale where I lost the very first bird I knocked down to search again. I just, I just hate losing a bird. If I had found it, I don't know what I would have done. I think I would have tried to hide it someplace cool, probably would have gutted it and hid it someplace where I thought it would be cool, behind a hay bale or something on the north side of a hay bale, and then go back and pick it up the following day. I do know that I would not take a chance on having over my limit in a day in my possession and be stopped by a game warden. I know there are guys online that think that a game warden would be sympathetic, but I, if my experience with game wardens, they would not. And that's not a wrap on game wardens. That is their job. I was back at my truck at noon with a three-bird limit of chickens and a fall turkey. Although in reason, this should have been as easy a combination limit as it was, but it was usually the easy ones that haunted me for years. I had fully expected that out of the three possible dual limits this trip, chicken and turkey would have been the one I would get. But I've had some spectacular bird hunting seasons and still failed to take a single new dual limit, so I was beyond taking any of them for granted. If you'd like to hear how the last couple of days of this trip went, you'll find that in my podcast, Prairie Chickens and Prairie Chickens, or Double Limit of Prairie Chickens, or whatever I named it, I don't recall. But if you listen to that one and you still think it's too difficult to shoot chickens without a dog, well, you just haven't been listening very well. 
The weather had been warm, but I've never hesitated to hunt in hot weather, with or without a dog. When Critter was alive, I hunted her early and late and hunted the hottest part of the day alone. There are those who say they wouldn't bird hunt without a dog, that it just isn't the same. I agree with them. Bird hunting without a dog isn't the same. It's more challenging, yet just as rewarding, only in a more personal way. When dogless, you do it all, and generally speaking, it takes greater knowledge of birds and habitat to be successful without a dog. I love hunting with a dog as much as the next guy, but I love bird hunting too much to not hunt because I don't have a dog, or because it's too hot or cold for a dog. Upland birds can be ridiculously easy or impossible. You never know if the next step is going to put up a limit of birds, or if you won't see a bird all day. Or as in Kansas two years earlier, when I hunted for five days without shooting a single bird. Jeez, it hurts to tell you that. Savor the good days. Believe me, one day the memories of those days will be more important to you than living them was. Okay, now I'm going to tell you how to shoot chickens. For a bird hunter living in eastern Iowa, I've shot a lot of prairie chickens. I shot my first chicken in Nebraska in 1986, 37 years ago. The following year, I shot chickens in all three major chicken states, Kansas, Nebraska, and South Dakota. I'm an odd sort. Did I really have to tell you that? After a few years of prairie grouse hunting, I became species-specific. I intentionally targeted just chickens or just sharptails in my bag. I not only had to immediately discern between juvenile pheasants and prairie grouse, but also the more subtle differences between sharptails and chickens. I learned to notice subtleties in game bird flight and sound that most hunters could ignore. In all of the specific dual limits I've attempted, I have not once shot a sharptail that I thought was a chicken, vice versa, nor have I ever mistakenly shot a pheasant. If I can do this with my poor vision and hearing, so can you. There's really no excuse for confusing a hen pheasant for a prairie chicken. Prairie chickens are chocolate brown on the back and sides, blending to a gray breast with horizontal dark bars. The bars aren't identifiable in flight, but they do lend to a darker appearing breast. Hen pheasants, on the other hand, are medium brown all over with a yellowish tint to their breast. Prairie chickens have short rounded tails with a heavy dark brown band across the tips. You may recall that early settlers referred to prairie chickens as square tails and yellow legs. Chickens do have yellow feet and fully feathered legs, which pheasants do not have, but I doubt that you'll notice that in flight. Hope you all realize that hen pheasants have pointed tails. Pheasant broods in September will not even vaguely resemble chickens. Pheasants nest a couple weeks later than prairie grouse, and by September, young pheasants are nearly as developed as juvenile grouse or chickens. Pheasant plumage is still mottled, and they fly clumsily. September pheasant chicks flutter along for a few yards, gradually losing momentum and altitude, and clumsily crash land. There's nothing controlled or graceful about a September juvenile pheasant. Most juvenile roosters will be developing color that chickens never have. If you flush a bird that is not a strong flyer, don't shoot. Even juvenile chickens are strong flyers in the first week of the season. Juvenile pheasants are not. In flight, the difference is much greater. 
prairie chickens come up from cover at a steady rate. They don't seem to accelerate like pheasants do. Also, chicken wing beats are deeper sounding, as all grouse are. Maybe you've noticed that pheasants have a metallic sound to their wing beat. In flight, prairie chickens seesaw, rocking gently back and forth as if they only have full power in one wing at a time. At more distant flushes, these tips may not be as helpful, but if the bird appears to be short, dark, and stocky, with an irregular flight, everything that a hen pheasant is not, it's a chicken. I doubt if many of you will be hunting prairie chickens without first having a lot of experience with pheasants. When hunting the early prairie grouse season in western Nebraska and South Dakota, I never worried about shooting a hen pheasant. But as I transitioned to eastern Nebraska, pheasants became more of a reality. But I still expected to shoot on every flush. If you're going to be a successful prairie grouse hunter, that's how shooting is done. As always, if in doubt, don't shoot, and if all this fails and you can't identify the bird in your hand, prairie chickens have dark meat. In the 1980s, I spent several seasons hunting pheasants and quail in southern Nebraska and north-central Kansas. I lived on the state border for a year just to do more pheasant and quail hunting. I did most of my Kansas hunting with a friend, Larry, from Phillipsburg. On occasion, we would cut across the cut milo field to a favored pheasant or quail draw, and it seemed that invariably we would flush a prairie chicken or two. Of course, no one shot because we weren't hunting yet, but the flush would invariably be met with a chorus of, hey, that was a chicken, as the bird sailed out of range. I realized the accepted chicken hunting practice in Kansas is to post around a stubble field and pass shoot the birds flying in and out. My experience hunting chickens in Nebraska was that all of the chickens flying into the field in the morning do not leave. There are some lazy chickens who negate the need to fly in and out for a morning and afternoon feed by spending the entire day in the stubble field. Those are the birds that pheasant hunters flush during midday. My limited experience of pass shooting chickens coupled with ratings is that as an individual, it's a waste of time. I have read many accounts and invariably a few members of the party get some shooting, many get none, and no one shoots the two-bird limit. My friend Larry had a different twist. They didn't hunt in groups. Usually just one or two guys would sit a field before they began hunting pheasants or quail. They didn't post around the outside edge. They hunted chickens like ducks. They headed to the highest spot near the center of the field and sat in the stubble. It was that simple. With a two-bird-per-man daily bag limit, they shot a lot of limits of chickens before the sun was up. I haven't hunted Kansas for many years, but I plan to return in a couple of years to shoot a combination limit of chickens and bobwhite quail. For chickens, you'll find me in the middle of a Milo stubble field at daybreak and walking the same stubble field in the afternoon if I'm short a bird. The best advice I can give you when pheasant hunting in north-central Kansas it's to forget about the roosters, they identify themselves. This area offers one of the best possibilities for a non-prairie grouse hunter to shoot his first prairie chicken. Don't let it pass you by because you don't know what to look for. Expect to flush prairie chickens. If a single brown bird flushes, expect it to be a chicken. In my stubble field hunting experience, I've seldom flushed more than one or two chickens together during midday. You'll need to abandon the initial don't shoot, it's a hen mentality and embrace a shoot that chicken mentality.
Shot refusal should come when the gun hits your shoulder. This gives you the added split second for positive identification. If you wait for identification and then raise your gun, the chicken will likely be out of range and the opportunity lost. As a conscientious hunter, you will not accidentally shoot a hen pheasant, but you may intentionally shoot your first prairie chicken. Alright guys, now go out and shoot some chickens. I believe that I used this descriptive analogy in a previous Prairie Chicken podcast, but I just can't resist doing it here again. I doubt if many of you will be as concerned as I've been about whether you're shooting a prairie chicken or a sharp-tailed grouse. And if you're still confused about being able to tell a sharp-tail from a chicken, the differing physical appearances between chicken and sharp-tails can best be illustrated by picturing sharp-tails as cheerleaders and prairie chickens as librarians. This is Randy Shepard with My Dog Hunts Podcast, and please remember, if your friends ask who you're listening to, speak kindly of My Dog Hunts.